If it's not one thing, it's got to be another. In this day and age of expensive groceries, uh, from the endless taxation of gasoline, and we also have a situation where, according to the UN Secretary General and Al Gore, of course, we're entering into the age of global boiling. Imagine that, and things will end in 2030, likely. So who knows? But in this time, it seems like everything is pretty absurd. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So today we're going to be talking about absurdity with our guest, Elizabeth Nixon. And uh, welcome, Elizabeth. Hi. Elizabeth, um, I'm really honored to have you uh, join us. Um, you have done an awful lot of uh, very interesting investigative journalism. You've written for um, many of the leading publications in the world, uh, whether you were uh, um, a journalist for Time Magazine or the uh, European Bureau Chief for uh, Life Magazine, as I recall. You've also written for The Guardian, The National Post, The Globe and Mail, um, Harper's, um, to, to just name a few. You've also written many books, and uh, you're also a fellow at the Frontier Center, so we're delighted to have you. Well, I'm delighted to be a fellow at the Frontier Center. <laughs> well, um, I'm excited about our discussion today because, you know, we'll, we'll be covering an awful lot of topics, and I think a lot of them relate to the wide range of themes that you cover within your Substack, which is really quite fascinating. And you called it Absurdistan, if I, if, if I get that uh, pronunciation correctly. But why did you call it Absurdistan? Well, apparently, David, it has um, a root in the, um, in the eastern uh, states, uh, East Berlin and Hungary during the Soviet takeover it was just when when they imposed those sets of uh, authoritarian rules everything became absurd and they actually called it absurdistan but they used the b a p instead of the d oh i see uh, somebody sent somebody sent me the crest that they use so i very much think that canada is going hard marxist and much of what's happening is absurd. But most particularly when I researched, traveled to research uh, uh, eco-fascists in the States, but also here, uh, I found that regulations were written in such a way so that nobody could get through. Uh, if you wanted to build a ski hill or if you wanted to um, uh, build a mine. Uh, you had so many strange layers of regulation that sometimes if you got through one process, which would take you a year or two and cost you maybe half a million dollars, there was another layer, which if you had made one tiny error in that process, and there are lots of opportunities for error, you would immediately run into a wall and your project would be finished. 
And it was, it was written so tightly, all of this was written so tightly uh, and clearly coordinated in order to stop growth, to stop economic growth. Now that made me very angry. It made me very, very angry because it meant that ordinary people who were not connected could not get a foot on the ladder. They were, you know, relegated to surf status no matter what. There was no, no creativity or energy or uh, brilliance that could get them through the, through the maze of regulation um, at, at, in any way. And so I would visit farmer after rancher after forester, and the same thing came up over and over and over again. And then I started with the engineers that were in the Forest Service and all the other, um, you know, earth, air, land and water uh, agencies. And they said, look, in 1970, we were told de-development. And I would just not believe them, but it, it was said so many times to me that if you joined the for, for U.S. Forest Service in the 70s, you were told we are no longer expanding, we are stalling or contracting, and that's your job. So, so let's just get to that in a moment here, because... It, it, I mean, I, I certainly appreciate reading your substack on a variety of topics, but Absurdistan was a very appropriate title then, given that kind of history of almost like a, a, a group of, of leaders within the state and, and beyond that are not about empowering people, but almost disempowering them. So I, I did want to ask a little bit about you, though, in terms of your background, Elizabeth. Uh, you grew up in uh, what part of Montreal again? Westmount. And how did you get drawn into becoming an investigative journalist? Hmm. I, I, I've always been a curious person. I, I was, we had a dinner party on Saturday night and I said, when I was 17, I was reading Addison and Steele and Swift and the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. I was always interested in that kind mm -hmm. of thinking. Um, it took me a long time to get to journalism, but it was just an intense curiosity, basically, and it fed me. So when I got to Time magazine and I, I was limited to um, the arts, culture, crime, anything but diplomacy and war, I hmm. actually thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Interesting. Um now, I, I think you're one of a kind in terms of an investigative journalist, um, from my humble perspective, but um, I've noticed that you're very much into um, uh, a depth of research and documentation, and it seems like you're very good at connecting dots and noticing for, for kind of patterns. So how would you describe your approach to investigative journalism? Is there a kind of a, a methodology that you use, or how do you describe it? Um, well, I, it's always comes from my feelings first. So if something emotionally moves me, then I think, okay, that, why does that bother me? Why is mm -hmm. that? So it, it's always that feeling. So, so right now, for instance, um, I'm very concerned about food mm. because I see old ladies at my grocery store, um, you know, counting their pennies 
when they check out. Yeah. That makes me very, 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 very angry. And right. I say, why? I live in British Columbia, which is not a food desert. I, we have more food than anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe the Central Valley of, of California, but we our food is so expensive mm-hmm. that women in their 70s and 80s who are living on their own are mm-hmm. having trouble eating. Yeah, it's so heartbreaking. That, so that will in will trigger me. So it's okay. always something like that. And I often find that what's triggering me triggers every everybody else that has a heart and a soul and a mind. Mm-hmm. So, so you're using, you're not separating off your emotion, but you're actually empathizing with our community, our fellow citizen. Yes. And, and, uh, that's, that's the job of journalism. It is, it's, it's connecting the dots. Why is that happening? Yeah. So, so I find that fascinating. So how do you then develop a healthy skepticism of issues that are happening and, and we know that, and, and bear with me, but in my own experience, issues are sometimes black and white, but often there's a complexity to them. I refer to it as peeling the onion. There's different layers of complexity. But how do you walk the line of not being naive in terms of what issues are, you know, who who's behind working at issues from a certain angle and agenda, if you will, um, but at the same time, grounding that story in truth and facts and not getting into the realm of, and and I say this deliberately because there's a lot of people ironically in power that would say, well, you're just a conspiracy um, theorist. You're, um, you're, you're just telling tales. Uh, But ironically, there's a lot of things that are not conspiracies. Um, So how do you walk that line between truth telling and not getting drawn into the rabbit hole. All right. Well, for instance, the the series that I'm working on now, which is um, comes from um, my mother's experience with MK Ultra, mm-hmm. uh, and going into what um, happened in the U.S. and Canada after the Second War, and what was the decision made by people at the top about what, how they wanted the culture to go. I'm very much into the realm of conspiracy. So as a result, I have to read very, very deeply and I have to go back to source documents. Mm -hmm. I have to go back to where they started these ideas and who were the intellectuals behind them. How did that set those those set of um, ideas translate into reality through behavioral institutes, how Uh those institutes moved into the bureaucracy. So it's always, um, it's always documentation for me. Okay. So in that context, maybe we could just clarify for audience, what was, what was MK ultra? It was a very significant initiative. Yeah, it it was a, an effort of the American military to, uh, understand and use mind control. Mm-hmm. Um, they found that after the Korean War, some of their prisoners were coming back and they had be, been turned communist mm-hmm. in North Korea. And they found that they'd been brainwashed. Uh, as a result, they wanted to learn how to stop that and how to brainwash themselves. 
So they in they started um, they started researching, and mm-hmm. a lot of people have in in the uh, in psychology and psychiatry have written about mind control. And one of um, our hospitals, the Allen Memorial in Montreal, was given over to uh, mind control experiments around 1952. Um, the hospital had been a family house. Uh, all the f- all the sons had been killed in the Second War, and the family gave it to um, Ewan Cameron and the McGill Medical School and the CIA. Mm-hmm. And for about 15 years, he used mildly mentally ill patients and tried to make turn them into what they really wanted was somebody who was programmed to kill at a at a phrase. Gosh. And so so what they were trying to do with um, people like my mother, who had whose first child had died and she had postpartum. Mm. Um, and had extreme anxiety. They tried to to implant ideas into their heads through a series of um, experimental methods, most of which were very cruel. Mm-hmm. So that was that was subproject sixty eight. There were one hundred and fifty. We know very very little about the others. Wow. Um, we know that they poisoned black prisoners. We know that they. Mm. Um, they tried to brainwash uh, German prisoners of war, but very little. We had one great journalist in this country, Anne Collins, who's retired now, but she found the documentation and she just brought it all out. Mm-hmm. And it was a groundbreaking book all over the world. Yeah. So this is, I think it's an extraordinary example because this is not, this is not a conspiracy. There were interests involved that did want to examine for power's sake how to um, use the mind to um, exert their power. Um, And and that's a very significant theme that continues throughout human history and including today. That's that's really a powerful example, isn't it, Elizabeth? Yes. Um, Yes, I I think that we can actually um, look back and say a lot of the um the the drugs and music were uh products of mk ultra i think we can say that the environmental movement was dreamed up in the clinics attached to mk ultra and wow. i think we can also say that second wave feminism was um not started but certainly heavily funded by the government because they want want to draw down population. Well, this is almost hard to believe, isn't it? These kinds of assertions. And yet um, one has to look at the evidence. And and so we'll get to that in a sec. But I I guess what I'm getting at is that who is serving whom here is a kind of a a primary question we all need to ask is when we see an issue, uh, what is really going on? Are the people in power serving the people or are the people being used? Is that kind of like a kind yeah. of a primary principle that 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 you struggle with in your work? Yes. Um, well, I, I've come to the conclusion that our government in Canada, the Liberals and the NDP, are very much not serving the people. 
and they mm. are serving some higher purpose that we don't know about. And I'm not, when I say higher, I don't mean better. I mean that they, I think there's a collaboration between um, international socialism and the World Economic Forum. Interesting. So you, you really draw those, those um, elements together. It, it's fascinating because in 2011, um, you wrote quite a pioneering book. It was okay. called Ecofascists, How Radical, we use the word conservationists at that time, but radical environmentalists are destroying our natural heritage. And you documented a lot. And in many ways, I would say, in my opinion, that you really foreshadowed a lot of the, the elements of what are happening today. You, you talked a lot about um, the campaigns to shut down oil and gas in Canada. You talked a lot about the funders behind that movement um, that were funding NGO or non-governmental organizations um, in quite detail. And it was really quite pioneering work. And I think you documented a lot of the, the so-called pseudoscience, just utter nonsense that guided so-called decision-making or, or advocacy um, that actually undermine the environment in, in some measure. I know it sounds hard to believe, but, and, and you talked a lot about the hypocrisy um, of the environmental movement. Um, you talked a lot about culture as well. And, and so I, I guess... When you look at that book today, what? How would you explain that book to someone today in 2023? I don't know. I mean, I I don't think anybody that hasn't come to the conclusion of some of the ideas of the book would read the book because it's so um, radically against the kind of climate change panic zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. um, my uh, the thing that that captured me because I was doing more land than uh, air, but everywhere I went to the States and here as well, uh, the Endangered Species Act was the thing that was preventing um, anybody growing. And the more I went into it, the more absurd it became and mm -hmm. how um, the science had been so overstated and so corrupted. I mean, it, Outside of the cities in the U.S., the Endangered Species Act is the most powerful act in the land. It determines everything. And uh, it's it's based on false science. It's all falsified. So, so, so what do you mean by that? Surely you're not against the environment or, or saving animals, trees, birds, and, and all the yeah. rest, like all of us, aren't, aren't you? Like what? What's I don't think anybody is anymore. I mean, that was one good thing about the brainwashing. Everybody became very sensitized to the to to the earth. I mean, I grew up in the country, as as you might might know, and I uh, I live on a, uh, in a forest which I've covenanted, and I have creeks and ravines and mm -hmm. supposedly blue listed species on my property, um, and I would not live in a, any city again ever. I don't even want to go to cities anymore. And I think most people, if they had a choice, not everyone, of course, 
would want to live the way I live. And I would like to see more people live the way I live because it's healthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, my water does not have fluoride in it or anything else. I, I get it from a well. And uh, so, you know, God bless us all. We all need to live like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the future. Uh, I, I heard, I, I don't want to diverge so much, but I heard a doctor say yesterday that the medical industry in the U.S. is a $40 trillion business, and it's all about disease, and you can't cure anybody with two or three pills. You, have, you need ongoing mm -hmm. illness. Mm -hmm. So if you reverted the economy back to sort of living in harmony with the earth, many of those illnesses would A, not happen, and B, be curable, not, you know, treated, curable. Mm -hmm. so that, that is, to me, that's the, the, the necessary next step. Once we get, you know, the boot off our neck. Okay, so... Just to note, then, just to finish off the the uh, Endangered Species Act in the in the mm -hmm. case of the United States, and, and there's equivalents, obviously, in Canada. Yeah, it's just um, as bad. It's been used. What would you say? We've we've gone overboard with it to shut down everything as a, as a pretext. Well, it's a lie. I mean, you can't base anything sound on a lie. Mm. The science has to be accurate. Mm -hmm. It can't be faked. Like uh, climate change science is fate. The models are garbage. Wow. Any scientist will say that. Any honest science scientist who's not making money and doesn't have to uh, maintain his position in a university. But all most of the retired, um, well, you know more about this than I, David. It's frustrating. I, I can't bear to really talk about it because it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the assertion that carbon dioxide is a pollutant, when in fact we know that's simply not true. It's, it's, it's elemental, it's, yeah. it's necessary for life. Um, this is why we, not too far from here, we, we pump carbon dioxide into greenhouses so that they can grow. And historically we know that greenhouse, um, greenhouses are, are um, masters of, of growing things. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, no, we could go on for quite a while here. So, uh, so what do you think is really going on here then when it comes to the UN talking about um, a plan of, of 2030 to um, get rid of, of carbon dioxide? It, it almost sounds Orwellian, 1984, where you're taking words or facts and, and flipping them on their head. Is, is that what's yeah. going on here? For To what end? Yeah, um, I think it's a, um, it's it's really to stop um, population growth and to start drawing down the population. Hmm. I don't know why they want to do that because it, it, it seems absurd. Um, but there, there, there is so much evidence that all of the people who run these programs profoundly believe that the earth is overpopulated and they believe it as an ex they believe it as an existential fact or they're using that belief in others to manipulate the situation okay. and I, I i can't really fathom the depth of their um corruption 
so that's a very different point of view a view that you don't really hear often is this notion that somehow um humans are the problem it's almost like an anti-human perspective and i guess that's a symptom then of very deep value differences and and i'll get to that in a second the sense that a lot of us have been taught that every human being is precious and made in the image of the divine but if you don't believe that then i guess human beings are like animals yeah. they're to be used as instruments or tools is that is that yeah. it? not that i i treat animals poorly no but um they're just to be part of a power game is that kind of where this gets down to the nub of the issue i think so yeah i do wow um yeah I, 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 one of the things that has always intrigued me about modern literature is that when I was growing up in Canada, um, everybody went to church. It may not have been that everybody loved going to church, and certainly mm-hmm. my generation and the f- generation that followed wasn't, you know, all that keen. But you kind of had to go, and that was the case in canada from its founding as a by europeans or mostly the english or the brits um that everybody went to church in my family which is you know seventh or eighth generation canadian and 20th generation american it was a christian family and every other family was christian and we we would sit there every sunday for 400 years and listen to the fact that humans are sacred and equal under the under God. Right. And once we split off from that in the 60s, humans became a virus very, very quickly. Mm. I mean, in terms of the sort of primitive management of humans, the fact that you had to go to church every Sunday and listen to that, even if you were an evil capitalist, you knew that you had to do something, you know, you had to pick people up. Hmm. And my family was particularly charitable, I think, because they'd been here for a very long time and they were prosperous. But they saw that as more important than success. I mean, success was very important. It was obviously necessary. Mm-hmm. But the next step, um, you were not an adult unless you were working in the community directly facing other people's distress. Hmm. And once we lost that, we disconnected, we assigned all that to government. We lost our, we lost part of our humanity. You know, that that's a, again, a perspective you don't, we perhaps have taken for granted and now we don't really hear about it. But, you know, I, I look at the world through the lens of kind of classical liberalism and we'd say, well, a very important part of a high functioning society is to have um, a very important set of shared values. And one of which was, yes, a belief that every individual is precious and that they're equal um, under the law, uh, including the king, queen, or prime minister. But these shared values were very important in terms of how we lived in peace as a society and how we got along together well. And yeah, yeah. so it's, this is all interrelated, isn't it, Elizabeth? Yeah. Yeah, it, there was a, a very bad split in the in the late '60s that um, that that really turned us to the dark side. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that? In in the sense of culture or values, or or what do you well, what are you I mean, referring to? 
I, I don't I don't know whether you watch television or premium television, but um, I and I stopped a while ago, but it's all very, very dark now. There's nothing positive. And every every single person is um, so flawed and so, you know, mean and um, and dark and, you know, they are afflicted with addictions. And so all the models in our culture now are, are, are dark and, and, and demonic and our heroes are, are billionaires with excessive, I mean, it's, it's really a corrupted culture from, Mm -hmm. from my perspective. Um, Yeah. So we, so you're, you're really challenging us to say, wow, the culture that we drink in is very reflective of what's going on within our minds and indeed our souls. And we need to pay attention to that. So um, I think that's all the more reason why we need to uh, look at our own family life and say, wow, what are we consuming in terms of, of media and culture? And that's why I think the emergence of, of new uh, media networks is so important, isn't it? It's, it's critical. I mean, I think it, I think new media is growing so fast mm-hmm. that uh, we can hardly keep up, and old media is dying. Uh, nobody's watching these premium channels anymore. Uh, they they are losing subscribers. Disney is going to have to sell Disney World. It's so uh, Netflix has lost millions of subscribers this year alone. Um, the CBC, which we, you know, pay 1.4 billion a year into it, it its news only reaches 1.34 percent of the uh, of the Canadian populace. Oh, really? I didn't realize it was quite that low now. <laughs> it is. Wow. It's 1.34 percent, and most of that is radio. Um, mm. they, all that that world is dying, and mm-hmm. and not fast enough, David. Yeah. Not fast enough. So in that case, like if you look at the um, the CBC or a lot of these issues, is it fair to say a lot of it is when you have state actors, um, e.g. politicians, politicize things around them? So instead of acting honorably um, to safeguard the function and role of those institutions, they use them cynically as a tool, as a as a weapon to go after their political opponent. So I don't mean this in a non I, I mean this truly in a nonpartisan way. They they politicize everything around them and they use it as leverage to move and advance power. Is that again the common theme here? Without trying yes. to sound like I'm not paying attention. Yes. Well, I mean they're trying they're using mind control. I mean, mind control has developed to the point where they now can use it on mass mass people. Now, what do you, and, what do you mean by they, mind control, though, Elizabeth? Like, surely. Well, I mean, they they'll analyze what a population needs. Like, for instance, the environmental left. They'll say, "Well, they need this. They need to hear this," and then they will take uh, the uh, suburban middle class, and they need to hear that. Mm-hmm. And then they identify the evil doers who mm-hmm. are, for the Liberal Party anyway, the right, the f- extreme far right, which I suppose I am. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, and then they they say they and then they set all three at each other. 
So okay. they try to divide the culture and set people at each other. So they're too busy fighting or arguing. Um, and they've caused, look at, look at our families. I mean, we can't, we can't agree about anything anymore. Mm. You have to actually go into a family situation and not talk about anything important. If you want to get out without having started fights or arguments, that is deliberate. That was created. That was deliberately created by our governments. Okay. So there's an old saying, a house divided cannot stand. So are you inferring that? they're kind of using a lot of people in power use the old playbook. You want to divide people. You want to create some measure of conflict so that uh, they don't work in unity to build this country, but rather than you can exercise your power as you see fit. Is that, is that kind of another way of saying it? That's exactly what they, what they're doing. And, and um, uh, I think that, the current liberal government, because they are so close to the World Economic Forum, are using the World Economic Forum's behaviorists mm. to craft messages for Canadians. We're almost a test case because we're way out on the mm-hmm. on the leading edge of what Agenda 2030 wants from people from the West. Uh, by which I mean the democratic West, Western Europe and the US and Canada mm. and Australia and New Zealand, they want us to shut our, our, uh, our economies down so that we have a typical one, one and a half percent growth and uh, our middle class deteriorates hmm. um, because a, middle, a healthy middle class can fight back. Wow. And that's what they want. And and they're very clear about it, David. It's it's in all their founding documents. It's right there in black and white. And and every no matter which um, institute you look into, whether it's Tavis, Tavistock or the Stanford Research Institute or um, any of the Rand Institute, all of military intelligence they all have these founding documents that this is the way the culture must go Hmm. it it it's they they couch it in language that says this is uh going to be good and they but their their fundament is that we don't have enough resources so so we must control and draw down activity and of course the whole climate change fiction thing but that's that's what that's what's going on okay so i think a lot of people would be shocked to hear this so your thesis is that there truly is a lot of people that um are in charge they may not all agree the same but there's a there's a kind of a a shared belief that somehow we have too many people in the world they're malthusians the the fancy name with that history uh going back to many things including the club of rome i imagine where they said basically we've got too many people so we've got limited resources we can't we've got to deal with this issue so we're going to work systematically um using many different tactics to to try to bring that kind of twisted reality or vision to bear is that kind Mm -hmm. of the summary so if you go to any middle class dinner party um, and you asked everybody there 
whether there are too many people on earth, I would say a solid plurality would say yes. Okay, yeah, you're probably right. That was brainwashing. That was actually created and and insinuated into the culture through the media. Wow. It's because it's not true. Yeah. It's just not true. So, so maybe that's a, a homework assignment for our audiences. Next time you're at a <laughs> dinner party, ask that question. Yeah. I, I do know that from a conversation, it's amazing. Last year, I had that exact question. And I'm not making this up. Um, and yeah, most people said, yeah, we've got too many people. And others said, well, no, there's an abundance of resources and we're innovative. We can figure this out. Uh, we don't yeah. need to be worried about that. Um, yeah. We just need to make wise decisions. So that's a very different, dare I say, optimistic view of human ingenu- ingenuity uh, yeah. than the other side. That's for sure. Humans humans can solve anything. We are the most creative people right now. Mo- mm-hmm. Modern humans are so creative. They're just being suppressed. Yeah. Everybody's suppressed. Well, and I, I think what's interesting about that thesis, that perspective, um, Elizabeth, that you're challenging us to think about is that a lot of people um, at a certain level, I know internationally that I speak with, don't necessarily believe in democracy. They don't like the idea that the people really have a voice. It's easier to just go out and do something. I think this is part of the uh, fascination that many people have with the, uh, the so-called Chinese model where there's this kind of benevolent dictatorship. And I'm not suggesting that the Chinese dictatorship is that at all. It's just, it's actually contrary to that. But where you can exercise power without having to go to uh, pesky people, namely, uh, oh yeah, the people, um, to you know weigh in on democracy. Is that kind of it? This is also a, a significant workaround of democracy. I mean, I, I know that Trudeau said that once as a kind of throwaway remark he's regretted ever since Mm -hmm. but um and i suppose yeah people like him would think that and certainly with the evidence of um what were his remarks again elizabeth that he envied uh china's basic dictatorship because he can they can get things done faster Mm. so you know i think that is yeah sure that's a common belief in people who within people in our senior bureaucracy yeah i would think that was probably mm-hmm. true yeah so it's it's a little bit of um as my friend uh, dr eamon butler is the head of the adam smith institute in london would joke um these are the good and the great the people that think that they have the prerogative to run yeah. your life and you yeah. don't have the right to live your life as you see fit as an adult it's almost bizarre isn't it it, it is. This is an example I use quite a lot recently. Um, my uh, both paternal great grandparents settled in Vancouver when there were only four thousand people here, mm-hmm. and um, and they, you know, they they built the city. Um, the Nixons were pioneer contractors, they were called. But my great grandfather, Doug. He contracted Kicking Horse Pass, which is still the highest, longest railroad pass in the world. And he had a high school education. Wow. Liverpool School for Boys. And this was in the 1890s. You know, so if he can do that, David, we can do anything. Yeah. We can do anything. 
Well, I, I like that sense of optimism and pioneering spirit that founded the frontier and and uh, did so many great things. Because it's interesting, you know, you think of, of so many persons in power, what thing that strikes me, and I think you point this out in a number of your articles in your Substack, is the, the hypocrisy where you have people, and, and I, I don't like to throw this out lightly, but the elite make certain actions that don't at all relate to what they want everybody else to do. Yeah. So you have people flying around, for example, preaching and trying to institute by law all kinds of edicts about climate change, um, given that it's so, it's a so-called existential threat. And yet you have people flying around on jets, like you have the governor general flying to what was it, the climate summit, if I recall, in February in Finland, um, burning up 25,000 liters of, of jet fuel while going to a climate change summit. I mean, is this not somehow Hippocratic? I mean, maybe you could have joined the, the meeting by Zoom. Um, I think that's part of the demoralization program. Demoralization? So that, what, yeah. What, so what that is, is um, it's meant to make you feel frustrated and little. Oh, hmm. so they can do that, but you can't heat your house in the winter. It, it's, it's a way of, of suppressing people. And the absurdity is um, an added insult. So part of the depopulation program is demoralizing people. Um, and it's particularly demoralizing um, bright, educated, middle-class kids from having children because they would create uh, children who would want to do something with their lives, you know, that ha would get up and go. So they would like to have a lot of very um, humble, uh, submissive immigrants rather than... Passive. Um, passive is the word that comes to my mind. Passive immigrants. So what they're trying to do is they're just trying to crush you. They're trying to crush your feelings, your attitudes, your initiative, your creativity. You can't do anything about climate change. You can't. You can't. We can do something about climate change because we can just fly anywhere. We are so above you and we are so privileged and you can just, you know, breathe our jet fumes. Really, it's that cruel. I think it's that cruel wow. and that deliberate. It, it's it's hard to relate to that, but perhaps these people do think they're gods. Um, I think that they want to be. I think that they wow. want to be. When I was growing up in Westmount, uh, I knew the children of the men who had brought uh, the CIA into the city and installed them in the Allen Memorial. In fact, my uh, one of my best friends that Al the Ravenscraig was the, her family house. And they, growing up around those people was instructive because um, they thought of themselves as all powerful because mm -hmm. they owned everything. They owned everything. They owned the newspaper, they owned the cement country company, they owned all the shipping lines, they owned everything. And they employed thousands and thousands of people. 
-hmm. And you could just feel the disconnect in, in our neighborhoods, which were so separate and so hallowed and so heavily fenced. And it's very much like that today among those people. And while they, well, the people that I grew up in among were still Christian, at least mm -hmm. nominally, and they did go to church. They had still had that, but I don't think the ones that are like that now do. I really don't. And I know it's a stretch because I like to think of everybody as inherently good. Mm -hmm. I really do. I mean, I walk around like that all the time that everybody's inherently good. And it, it takes, it, it takes an effort of will to use my reason and my experience with, with these people, mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to, to, to admit that they do not have the best interests of people like us, ordinary people, normals, as they call us, or mm -hmm. they call us, uh, you know, uh, useless eaters or, um, outsiders, or, oh, here's a phrase from my childhood, the many too many. The many, the many too many. The many too many. Wow. Yeah. Well, it, it's certainly a, a pernicious attitude that can be present in, in all of us to some degree. But, you know, my prayer is that we are gracious and kind to each other and that we do actually try to serve each other. Um, but, you know, I, I guess, you know, if I think of the, the kind of the extreme measures that are being talked about when it comes to the environment today, I think, you know, it, to me, it's, it's a very interesting case study. It's an example where you ask, why is this happening? Where you have a so-called just transition being implemented, um, where they're trying to close Canadian oil and gas. Um, this will have huge implications on people's Terrible. lives. Terrible. And what, what's driving this? I know that one of the things that you've talked about in the past, I think it's in um, a number of the papers actually you've done with, with Frontier over the years, has been the so-called Iron Triangle, um, the, yes. the relationship between scientists, um, the media, and then uh, politicians. And there's a kind of a, almost a perverse circular relationship that creates kind of an industry that funds yes. all of this. Is that, yeah. can you tell us more about that? No, the iron triangle, the environmental iron triangle is um, uh, bureaucrats, environmental NGOs, and politicians. And they just work together over and over. And they often, um, it, it's, it's less common for uh, environmental activists to become politicians, but they do. Uh, it's more common for them to move from bureaucracy to NGO back mm. and forth. And that is, um, that's really bad because what happens is that the, 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 these projects get funded and nobody really knows about them. N no one knows what's going on. Uh -huh. I mean, if, for instance, Peter Holly was telling me that, um, RFK Jr. set aside an entire section of Western Manitoba uh, at one point and just set it aside so nobody can use it. I mean, there's so much of our country mm -hmm. that is very, very beautiful that is not being used because mm -hmm. um, the Westons have set it. Weston Foundation 
along with the Nature Conservancy of Canada, has set aside so much gorgeous land that could be used for people to live in, that could be used for recreation, that could be used for wonderful hotels or mm -hmm. ski resorts or just for people to visit. But now they just, they're empty. And one of the things about ecofascists that was fairly unusual is that land set aside degrades. They found it in Africa. They found it everywhere. Mm. What happens is that unless humans are actually tending um, a, a rangeland or um, a watercourse or a forest, it starts to desiccate. I mean, it, all the fires that we're seeing now, um, David, are completely preventable. And I wrote about it and many Policy people have been writing about it for some time, but after the spotted owl came in, um, the order went out across the world, across hmm. the world, from the, the Food and Agriculture Organization at the UN and all of the Forest Service uh, uh, ministries that the forests were to be left alone and that all, you couldn't do any thinning anymore. You couldn't um, cut down, uh, you couldn't clear uh, old stumps. I, mean, I had a friend whose father was head of Crown Zellerback, and he said, we used to drag the stumps out of creeks. We used to clear the fields so there wouldn't be any tinder left on. Couldn't do that anymore. We had to just like let everything grow. So what's happened is all of the forests, because they are untended, have turned into tinderboxes. So they, they have these things called fire ladders of brush that crawl up the trees. Mm -hmm. And then because there's not enough water in the soil, because there's so many trees, everything desiccates and explodes in fire. And that is that there's what 2000 fires raging in the US Canada right now, mm -hmm. that is directly caused by the environmental movement. Wow. So, so that's a very uh, provocative thesis, um, you know, that, that people need to pay attention to is, is forest management practices matter, um, especially as we look at uh, wildfires today. Um, so when we think of that iron triangle. To the iron triangle. So what, yeah. why I used that was that um, because NGO officers move into the bureaucracy and they write the acts, they write the acts. Mm -hmm. um, nobody knows about it because the media doesn't report it and they don't report the downsides ever. So, so these, these things happen out of the way and they've happened everywhere because that's the thing about global globalization. It doesn't mm -hmm. happen in just, you know, none of it. It happens all over the world in every, every, every state and every county. So that desiccation of these forests and the forest fires um, happened from the, the founder of Earth Day, Dennis Hayes, during um, the Clinton's uh, deal with China in 93. He went to Clinton and he said, look, here's a really good thing for you to do while you're doing this deal. It will take a lot of the heat off you. Shut down the forests of the Northwest over the spotted owl. I will turn out, he told me this himself, I will turn out 150,000 people on the streets of Portland and Seattle, and you put that act in and it'll take all the media away from this deal that you're doing from China. Wow. And he did it. Yeah. He did it. He thought so I was on that 
side then when he told me. But, but you notice that the tactic is to use the state to advance power, not in a transparent, accountable way, yeah. but yeah. rather um, to use it covertly and behind people's back yeah. in terms of accountability and to also pretend that it gives the idea that there's a large citizen movement behind it when in fact yeah. there, there isn't if they if they don't even because they don't even understand what the issue is no they don't no so speaking of of the government let's turn to how the private sector seems to be adopting a lot mm -hmm. of of this kind of of uh, bizarre ideology and, and action um and it has to do with woke capital um the sense that you have it could be your corner bank that's getting on board with uh, the so-called environmental social governance movement, where they look at all your investments and they run it through kind of an index, a rating, if you will, a social credit score. What do you think about that um, as we look at, well, a good example is our Canadian pension plan choosing Russian oil and gas to invest in rather than Canadian oil and gas because of the score. How, how crazy is that? Mm, madness. Um, well, you know, that's, um, that's fascism, right? Now, what do you mean by fascism here? Because I think a lot of people say, what? Fascism? What, what does that mean in this context? Well, I mean, it's the ESG scores are um, out of the UN, which has signed treaties with um, Canada and with every province in Canada. Uh, and many, many of the um, regions in Canada, there are UN treaties embedded in those, and they are environmental and social justice uh, treaties that have been signed and have been ratified by government. And then corporations are forced to comply. Mm -hmm. So government control of everything is fascism. So that's what's happened. The government has captured capitalism. It's a very, very, very um, um, uh, impressive strategic uh, work. That's what I think of it. But okay. that's what it is. I mean, that's the basic definition of fascism is government control of everything. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So if we turn to the citizen, what do you think, Elizabeth, the citizen can do as they look at trying to be empowered, to be able to, well, participate in the democratic process so that we can actually, um, dare I say, turn our country, in your opinion, from a place of absurdistan to uh, a country of prosperity and, and democratic freedoms? Um, well, I think people are fighting back, don't you? I, I have a sense that this is an information war and that people are... Um, obsessively acquiring information uh, because of the growth of new media um, and the failure of old media. And people are some on an edge of panic. I sense that a lot of people are because a lot of um, if you try to destroy the middle class and every family is going to hurt. And when you're hurt, you start to look for reasons. And I think that's why um, new media is growing so fast. And as a result, um, people have to actually get up and go to meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to go to their local meetings and they have to start to get involved. That's the only way to do it. 
in my region, which is very, very left-wing and very, very green, um, we have a nascent movement of the 10,000 people on our island, maybe a thousand of us are uh, fully awake as to what is going on. Mm-hmm. I would say about 3,000 are completely disengaged and the rest of them are brainwashed. And I would think that that was a, probably a pretty good um, pretty good uh, reading of the situation in Canada. I mean, that the recent polls show that everything that Polyev says is um, very popular mm-hmm. uh, and everything that Trudeau says is very unpopular. So so people, as long as people are, are becoming aware and awake the next step is that they have to get involved and they have to shake the tree and get these people out of there because one of the things that um uh, that the uh, government has managed to do is to empower a lot of very left-wing people in local bureaucracies mm-hmm. and that has that has been a terrible terrible uh mistake because um either they're incompetent or they are just um, punitive. But in fact, you know, for instance, here, I love using this place as an example because it's so egregious. We have almost no uh, low cost housing. Uh, and there are a lot of people living in tents and in their cars and in trailers all over the place. And we are 90% of our land is under conservation. So that's 90% of free land. So there have been affordable housing um, projects on the board for 25 years that are still not approved, despite the glaring need. And that is because um, our bureaucracy and the advisory committees around it, which is what every every local government has are staffed by people on the left who for some reason don't want to house anyone mm-hmm. because why i don't understand yeah. it doesn't make sense but they don't and they fight it and they fight it to the death and they they will do anything to stop the housing so there so unless people get involved on that kind of level not much is going to change wow i mean even if even if we elect uh, a, a new government and their populist, these people are still going to be in place mm-hmm. and they're still going to be moving like, you know, like just like ice. They don't move. So, so, but what a, what a profound challenge to renew our society uh, for all of us to get involved, uh, yeah. to get involved locally, to become better aware, uh, to mm-hmm. speak up. And um, so I think that's a, that's a very good challenge, Elizabeth. It's a great career path for young people because there's so much to do. I mean, it would be, uh, it would fill a million new lives with purpose and, 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 you know, gravitas. So well said, uh, Elizabeth Nixon, I'm so grateful that uh, you could join us for this conversation today about many things, including looking at the world in terms of how we renew our rights and freedoms and our responsibility as citizens. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your courage and your wisdom. (laughs) It's a great pleasure, David. Thank you. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. 
We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.